I publish many comic magazines in addition to picture stories from the Bible. For example, I publish horror comics. I was the first publisher in these United States to publish horror comics. I'm responsible. I started them. Who is that talking? Who is he talking to? And why is he oh so, oh so wrong? Let's find out all these answers and much, much more. Because this isn't what's my line. It's what's my spine. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Got the Crypt Keeper Blues. This is the Comic Book Historians Podcast, and I'm your host, Bill Field. This week, I'm your Bill Field of Screams. <laughs> Today, folks, we go back and look at three topics from 1953, starting with the last great year of EC Horror Comics and its role in the horror boom and bust. Secondly, we'll talk about the EC bullpen itself. Graham Ingalls, Jack Davis, Jack Kamen, Johnny Craig. Boy. Thirdly, we'll go over the companies that were also part of the horror boom years. Atlas for sure, but also ACG, Ace, Fawcett, Avon, Harvey, St. John. Well, virtually all of them. And as always, we'll close with our regular or irregular rants on comics or anything else we want to. And when I say we... I mean none other than my podcast compatriots, Alex Gravedigger Grand. Al, how are you, buddy? Great to be here. Yes. Great to have you, Gravedigger. And then, of course, it's Jim Empty Tomb Thompson. Jimmy, how are you, buddy? Uh, I'm scared, Bill. You're you're scaring me. Thank you. That's what I that's what I wanted to do. Okay, so Guys, what the heck have you guys been up to since our winter solstice hiatus break? Well, so um, well, what I've been doing as far as comics is, uh, you know, I don't know how you guys feel about Jim Valentino and the 1990 to 1992 Guardians of the Galaxy comics, but I loved them. They were kind of my intro to Guardians of the Galaxy. I know Jim probably read Guardians of the Galaxy of the 70s before I read them, before I read the yes. 90s ones, but I love those uh, Jim Valentino comics. It felt like anything was possible in that 30th century. It felt like a mix of superheroes and science fiction in one really fun story, finding out what happens to all the characters a thousand years later is just really fun. So I ended up trying to figure out why did he leave Marvel, and I, and I realized, and I knew he was one of the image guys, but I ended up reading his Shadowhawk run that he did in the later 90s, and I had a lot of fun doing that because it had some of that same penciling technique that I really loved from his Guardians of the Galaxy run. And I, I had a good time. It, it it was an interesting comic, definitely a bit of a downer, just because it's about you know it, it's about a guy that gets HIV injected into him by a bunch of mobsters, and then is dealing with constant sores on his body as he puts on a metallic outfit and breaking bad guys' spines. And it's a really intense kind of extreme revenge story, which is the theme of that time. But you know, I love the Jim Valentino style, so I had a good time reading it. Well. Jim, I, I bet you can join me in this. The first time I really noticed Jim Valentino was Normal Man. Normal Man, yeah. I was going to say the same thing. Which, Which didn't have best. any sores on his body. It, it actually sounds more entertaining to me. I like Normal Man. I haven't read it in a long time. Have you? You know, I read half of a story about a year ago for some reason. I can't even remember why. And 
I enjoyed it, but it's very dated, you know, because comics have changed so much. You know, it's it was kind of like Dawn of the Dead to me. The original version didn't even have a Chick-fil-A in it. So, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that being <laughs> said. <laughs> I love Chick-fil-A, by the way. That is that is some good chicken. Well said. That's a good plug, too. They should pay us. We they in should. Virginia called it Chick-fil-A for my entire upbringing. I didn't know it was Chick-fil-A until yeah, like Chick-fil-A my wife told me. <laughs> yes, me, too. me too. Chick-fil-A was really good as a kid, too. Jim, are you excited about the Black Panther movie coming out? Yeah, I'm really excited about Black Panther. I can't wait. I'm going to go the first day, which I normally don't do, but I, I will not miss this. I'm I'm super excited. But I, I'm probably going through major withdrawals because it's going to be tough because I think by then I will have finished my uh, 365 horses that I have done for the Facebook group, Comic Book Historians. As you guys probably remember, about a year ago I started doing a horse a day with the deal that I would do it for a year with a different artist. And I'm down to 10 and I'm going to be grief stricken and probably going through major withdrawals. So black Panther is going to probably uplift my spirits a little bit. (laughs) That's great. You know, I do enjoy, I do enjoy your daily horse face. I mean, horse cast. You don't have a horse face, by the way, you know, and you're kind of I actually do have a horse face, but that's OK. I kind of I've gotten used to it. You remind me of a Fred Savage look. Oh, I like it. Oh, yeah. Very nice. Yeah, Very I nice. gotta say, I, I'm, I'm with you on that, Bill. <laughs> All <laughs> right. I, lo- correct you. I love the Wonder Years. That's a fun show. Well said. Thank you. And uh, a lot of sexual shenanigans went on that show, though. Oh, yeah, that's true. With Winnie Pooper. Was that her name? No, it would not have been Winnie Pooper. (laughs) I swear it was. It wasn't Winnie Pooper. Winnie Pooper. Yeah. He's talking about the porn version again. Thank you, Alex. Uh, (laughs) Well, we're talking EC this week, so we might as well be as degenerate as hell. And I, might I say, have been, Bafo and I have been squatching. And that, of course, is looking out for Sasquatch. In this case, the Falk Monster from Arkansas, which this is the 100th anniversary of my grandfather's encounter with the Falk Monster. So nice. he's okay. kind of the Arkansas version of Bigfoot. So Well, uh, well done. So there. Yeah. So also the legend of Boggy Creek. You may remember that, Jim, from the 70s, that really bad movie. Yeah, I kind of remember that. The guy's taking a dump on the toilet, and this big old swamp arm comes in and grabs Adam, and he's, like, all freaked out, and he's running in there pulling his underwear up. Okay. Yeah, you remember it a lot more vividly than I do, Bill. Well, I've I've rewatched it recently, and it's it's so (laughs) horrible. It is so horrible. Sounds like Bill's even memorized nose hairs and every little detail of that. Well, I, I even know the Travis Crabtree song, so that I'm not going to go any further than that. But I want to sing a song about Travis Crabtree. Okay, so that brings us. Uh, this is going to be, I am looking forward to Black Panther as well. And but let's get headlong into this, fellas, because we have a long, strange trip. It will be. What I want to know is, what was that opening clip or not opening clip if we go with my voice. And what was what was that about Bible comics, Jim? Well, it, what, we, what that was was the voice of William Gaines, publisher of EC Comics. 
And it was in 1954, and he was testifying before Senator Kefauver's subcommittee on juvenile delinquency. He was immediately following the testimony of Frederick Wortham, author of Seduction of the Innocent. So who was Gaines? Gaines was his son of Maxwell Gaines, who had kind of invented comic books, or at least been one of the inventors in the late 1930s. Gaines formed a partnership with Detective Comics and began publishing All-American Comics, which did Green Lantern, The Flash, Sensation Comics, with Wonder Woman, All-Star, with the Justice Society. All of these superhero comics aimed at eight-year-olds, basically. And Gaines in D.C. broke up in 1945, and Gaines started Educational Comics, E.C. Comics, primarily so he could publish picture stories, like picture stories from American history, and most importantly for him, picture stories from the Bible. They also published kitty comics, again, for for eight years old and younger. Two years later, Gaines tragically died in a boating accident, and William Gaines, his son, inherited the company. William Gaines didn't like comics at all. He didn't want anything to do with it. He wanted to be a chemistry teacher and was in college for that. And he was in NYU, wasn't he, Jim? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Now, Maxwell had brought in a manager from D.C., Saul Cohen, when he left D.C. And so Saul Cohen sort of ran things for a couple of years because Gaines didn't care anything about it. He was the one that changed the name to Entertaining Comics from educational comics because nobody, no kid is going to read educational comics. He dumped the picture story titles and he changed the kitty books to genre books. Not horror, but romance and crime and Western. By 1948, Gaines had left school and had come back to run the company at the bequest of his mother. They started hiring people like Al Feldstein, Johnny Craig, Harry Harrison, the science fiction author, and Wally Wood, friend of Harrison. The comics at that point weren't that good. In fact, they kind of stunk. But then 1950 happened. And with that, they became a horror company. And with that, they became legendary. So that's who it was. Well, hmm. Now, Alex, how did it go from that to becoming the the very company Jim just described as one we most closely associate, horror and sci-fi comics? So a couple things. One... Something just uh, specific about when Max Gaines did depart from Detective Comics and Donenfeld, who owned National at the time, was that he sold his shares of the All-American Comics. I think it was like 50% shares. And those superheroes, like half of the Justice League, they weren't Justice League or anything yet, then join up with the Batman Superman company and then it all becomes one unified thing. What I feel is really important about that, and I know we're not even talking about that, was when we watch Justice League and we see these characters, they were never intended really to be together inhabiting the same universe. So it is just funny how we're just kind of forcing him into this Justice League thing. And maybe that's why it just never really works in many media. But that's just a theory. At any rate, back to this. So as far as Gaines, when Gaines met Al Fieldstein in 1948, I don't think Gaines really had much excitement about what he was doing with that company. And I think Al Feldstein himself personally had a lot of enthusiasm of what he can bring to those comic books. And I think it came out to art as well as writing. And he had such an affinity for these that he could pump out a lot of quality and quantity, more so than his, I think, 
company nemesis Harvey Kurtzman, who was very OCD about every little issue. But because of Al Fieldstein's output and excitement, Gaines and him formed a bond, and they started the Western crime genres. As Jim said, they hired Craig and Wood and Ingalls and a few other people, but the Western started graduating more toward crime in 1948 with some real violence. And, of course, crime wasn't a genre they created. The crime started in Crime Does Not Pay in 1942 by Lev Gleason. But it was a violent gateway to the horror comics. Something that's interesting is around the same time that Captain America became Captain America's Weird Tales, crime comics, their sales were kind of softening, and Gaines gave horror a chance and committed to it with Al Fieldstein, who in a comic called Buried Alive in War Against Crime Number 10 and Crime Patrol 15, he introduces the Vault Keeper and the Crypt Keeper. And they kind of try out these crime stories, but with a horror bent and with a morality story at the end. And because that was so well received, those comics then immediately changed over to Vault of Horror and Crypt of Terror. And that, I think, became the beginning of what they call the EC New Trend, where they just went full on into horror. And although they weren't the first horror comics ever made, they did set a standard because they just had enough of this tongue-in-cheek attitude, a little bit of comedy, and with this very fitting particular type of art that just people loved. Kids loved it. It pissed off a lot of moms, but a lot of teenagers loved reading that stuff. And not to mention that the artwork was absolutely fantastic, so much so that a lot of people can't even live up to that today. And horror comics have never really been the same. Wouldn't you agree, Jim? I actually think there's been a couple of times. I think the early Warren years, especially under Archie Goodwin, were were as good. Yeah, I do have to agree. But but that's it. Yeah. But something I do want to mention is that there was just something very particular about their art. And we'll talk about that when we talk about the artists of that time. But it was just a particular type of art at that particular time where those artists, as celebrated as it was, a lot of them had a hard time doing other things. It was just the right time and place for them where they could really shine in a very odd niche. And I know that early Warren stuff is celebrated, but I feel like it's just a really unique, weird time that it's hard to recapture that magic. I think you're sadly right. Although I will say Warren ran longer than EC did. I mean, a good bit longer. I mean, so so just if you just look at it chronologically, Warren is is actually more significant than EC, although obviously it's not in terms of influence. Right. As far as cultural influence, maybe not, but definitely as far as how long it lasted, how many people read it while it was live and coming out with new content. It just didn't have a comics code to destroy it before it got a chance to really be around for a while. Now, they had with Jim Warren instead. To destroy it, you mean? Yes. Oh, I see. Whoa, Nelly. And I say that for Jim's benefit with the horse of the day. But uh, Daily Horse, sorry. <laughs> so sorry. But where exactly does that leave us in 1953? And why is 53 the banner year in many ways and the downfall in many ways of E.C.? Well, by 1953, everything was in place. You had the principal, the three horror books had been functioning now since 1950. 
1952, they added the last two books to the EC line that were significant up until the, the later one. Shock Suspense Stories and Mad were added in 52. You had the two science fiction books, Weird Science and Weird Fantasy, which had come in 1950. You had Crime Suspense Stories, which was Johnny Craig's little personal fiefdom. And you had the Kurtzman books, uh, Two-Fisted Tales and Frontline Combat. All of this together is what made EC the powerhouse that it was by 1953. And a lot of these books, this was their last year or the end of it. The science fiction books, I think, were gone by by the end of this. So something I do want to discuss is audience reaction and also the significance of Al Feldstein. Although Johnny Craig was writing a lot of stuff for The Vault of Horror, Al Feldstein was writing most of the horror books. And he just had that dark, comedic approach to writing I think a lot of us that just consumed a lot of those easy comics just kind of took that for granted because it's just really clever, funny, just dark stuff. But something about that time, and just for some historical context of the way people felt as they were consuming this stuff, is Truman, in the beginning of 53, announced that the United States had the hydrogen bomb, and Eisenhower just started being president, and he was projecting safety as a former military man from World War II. Meanwhile, there was McCarthy, who was fueling a lot of fear about who's a communist because of the Rosenberg couple that gave United States secrets to the Russians. So there's this weird mixture, a feeling of safety with anxiety in, in this very odd psychological mix. And a lot of that anxiety from the adult parental perspective was pointed at a lot of things, but comic books was one of those things. And Although that was fueled, anti-comics feelings were fueled as early as 1948. In 1953, it was really reaching a little bit of a fever pitch where Frederick Wortham kind of grabbed on to some of that sentiment and published excerpts from Seduction of the Innocent in the Ladies' Home Journal that a lot of moms were reading at the time in an article called what parents don't know about comic books. And although kids loved it, the parents didn't like it. And in 1953, the year that we're talking about, we had the very first EC fanzine, which was called the EC Fan Bulletin. And even Bill Gaines mentions it in the letters column of Weird Science 20, which inspired him to make the EC Fan Addict Club. And Bill Gaines is interesting because he was interacting with fans in 1953 with those letters pages the same way Stan Lee did in the 1960s. He was a bit of a mini-celebrity with those fans. And he was feeling great, riding the high from the enjoyment that his fans were giving him. He was also feeling the high because Mad Comics, which we're not really talking about in this one, but Mad Comics from Harvey Kurtzman and Wally Wood's efforts was gaining steam during 1953. So there was this bit of pride that Bill Gaines was feeling at the time. And I think maybe to ratchet up a little bit of sales, he probably did push the violence to hit a peak on the covers of those EC Comics that year. And there was public backlash from those parents, enough to the point where even Ray Bradbury, whose stories they were using oftentimes, wanted his name removed off some of those stories. So it's a funny bit of reaction where the kids loved it and the parents really hated it. But that was reaching a real extreme in 1953. One other point I'd make about that would be that it was also a matter of, and we'll get to this in the in the last section, but it was a matter of competition and escalation because the other companies 
in order to compete with EC, they were up in the game in terms of gore and horror because they didn't have the the artistry that EC did. So their covers were even more sensational and and more gruesome. And so EC had to kind of up the ante to compete with the, the other lesser companies. Absolutely. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Well, and, you know, I believe Bradbury was getting some backlash, too, for the story he wrote, the friendly robot that ripped my grandmother's head off. A lot of people didn't get that and didn't understand that that was his, his form of humor. But, you know, it, it went it pissed mothers off to no end. I'm kidding, of course. Sorry. I, I couldn't I, I couldn't go without making a Ray Bradbury joke. I love Sorry, that Jim. title, though, Bill. I want you to draw that story out when you get a chance. I think I will. Jim, Jim, can you help me with that? A robot ripped my grandmother's head off. Thank you. Thank you it's very a much. Country song. It's a country song, isn't it? You're <laughs> <protected>. <laughs> my grandma's head off. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Okay. Well, but we digress. Jim, did you just invent a sci-fi country music genre? That's interesting. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Cyber country. It's, it's nice. Friendly. Oh, I love that. Cyber country? <laughs> I'm your friendly Roy Rogers robot. Howdy. Boy, we're having too much fun today. I, I you know, I really have missed you guys. I'm I'm glad we're back in the groove, so to speak. Talking about science fiction country music, have you guys seen Phantom Empire? Do you know what that is? No. The it's Star a, Wars movie? What's that? Oh no, it's not a Gene Aud- it's a Gene Autry the- serial that was that was a it was a Western country music that Gene Autry would sing, but it was about an underground lair by these aliens sort of whose civilization was run by robots. And you would have these big picture screens and they would be spying and they would see Gene Autry singing to a bunch of country kids around the ranch all the time. It, it's it's an amazingly bad but but kind of fantastic film. Okay. <laughs> nice. But do you remember, Jim, when it was updated in 1978 or 79, I believe, for an NBC show called Cliffhangers? It had three different shows, 20 minutes each during an hour, and it featured a story of Dracula starring Michael Nouri, a story of the Phantom Empire, and I can't remember who started that, and then some really bad Charlie's Angels rip-off wannabe with Susan Anton, which she made it beautiful, of course. But I didn't know if you knew that. So the one of the segments was called Phantom Empire and it, was adapted it, from it that? It on the Autry serial. Yep. No, I never heard that before. That's yes. fascinating. It's amazing what we learn together as a team, <laughs> as a family, as it were. <laughs> we're one great big podcast family. We're like a tripod. I like to think that. It's like a tripod. I like to get a leg up. (laughs) I like to get a leg up. (laughs) In fiction, what dog is named Tripod? Well, I know that that's my nickname. I know that. And I don't want to know why. (laughs) I don't either. Thank you very much, Alex. Once more, degrading our show to no end. Okay, where were Tripod? It's a three-legged dog, of course. It's Tripod. But I can't remember. Damn. Folks, if you can tell us, we will say your name on the on the podcast next time. So tell us who is trying. No, Jim's going to look it up and blow it for everybody. So <laughs> never mind. I, I want you to say my name on the next podcast. Jim Thompson. Say, Jim Thompson. say my name, Bill. Say my name. Jim Empty Tomb Thompson. 
Okay. All right. Now, and now here we go to section two. Let's shift gears a little bit and talk about the actual creators at EC. We've kind of gone into it a little bit, but let's go in depth. What made them the very best horror comics in the field, and who are our favorites? I, Bill Field of Screams, is going to go first, and I start with the man that we've already mentioned. It was, of course, Al Feldstein, who uh, not only was the writer that my uh, compatriots have been talking about, but he's an interesting guy. He was born in October of 1925. He won a 1939 World's Fair poster contest, and that drove him into graphic arts. And he was hired by Jerry Iger, a comic book packager, and he worked on Sheena, Queen of the Jungle. And then he arrives at EC fairly early, 1948, like I believe we might have even said already. And he was one of the most prolific cover artists at EC and one of the most horrific artists of EC bullpen. In 1950 to 53, he edited and wrote stories for seven different EC titles. In 56, he took Kurtzman's place as editor-in-chief of Man Magazine. We don't really need to go into that, but I will say he was there for almost 30 years and hired the likes of Don Martin, Kelly Freya, Smart Drucker, and Yes, Joe Orlando, my, my next pick. I love his EC covers. They're all, they almost look like outsider art. I don't know if you guys would agree with me on that, but they were they were kind of like I don't know. They were so well designed, but they were kind of like Cole, LB Cole, and they were kind of like Steranko in a way. But Steranko, of course, would come later. But he had some of the most vividly horror, horrific comic covers of, of anybody at EC. What do you guys think? I don't know that I would say he has the design chops of either Cole or Steranko, but he, he certainly has the appreciation for how to get the audience attention. Absolutely. I mean, you just named two of the best designers in the business. Yeah. I wouldn't well, put him true. at that level. I would definitely say his talent is getting into his audience's head. And that's huge, actually. That's part of the reason why EC was as successful as it was. It wasn't Gaines by himself. Mm -mm. It was Feldstein and Kurtzman, but Feldstein really, really blew it into the minds of everybody. Anything he got his hands on with EC and later Mad, he amplified its ability to get an audience by like 20 to 30, 40, a lot. He, something like he quadrupled the Mad audience too, Anything he touched yeah. from that company was just, uh, he, he was the golden goose. I mean, he was awesome. He, he was a true talent. Jim, you have anything to add to that? Yeah, Mad did. We're, we're not going to talk about Mad too much, but, but right. the, best, the best Mads were before he came on. I mean, because he did Panic, and it wasn't that good. Kurtzman's Mad is the, is the gold standard. And I would say that in terms of EC's reputation at the time, Amongst professionals, it was largely based on the, the stuff that was just wowing people and saying this is the best comics being done was right. because of Kurtzman's books. And something to note is it's like that fine dining versus going to Outback Steakhouse. It's a difference of Kurtzman having a slightly more higher brow creation that was incredibly smart 
and created the formula. But Feldstein was able to reduce it to a lowbrow enough where there were just that many more readers that would consume it. And I know that that's not necessarily as artistically refined, but it drives a business, and that just can't be denied. There's something about appealing to the peanut gallery that really works. Wow. I don't really know what to say. (laughs) I I had something, then I lost it because I'm just so shocked that we are so far apart on this one. I, I just, I, I, I'm just, I'm in awe of Al Feldstein. I'm just saying, I'm in, I'm in pure awe of the man. Yeah, I love his stuff. I mean, it's a matter of taste. Obviously, I'm a fan. I appreciate highbrow stuff, but I like to get down and dirty with some of that middle to lowbrow stuff too. And you know, so I appreciate Feldstein. I appreciate Kurtzman um, for very different reasons. Yeah, me too. I will say this, Feldstein makes me laugh more than Kurtzman does. I just got to say that. Really? I mean, in the, in the Alan Moore says that the first 10 issues of Mad is the single greatest comics ever done in the history of comics. And I mean, I appreciate it. I've read it and I like it. But Feldstein's just makes me laugh more. It's more of a visceral feeling that, I mean, I'm a smart guy. I feel like my IQ is pretty good. But it just seems that when I read Kurtzman stuff, I like it. I feel like I'm reading the way things should be. And then when I read Feldstein, I feel like, ah, pull my finger, make me fart. It's funny. Yeah, I never <laughs> thought that was funny. <laughs> so I, I think it's, we're definitely coming down to sensibilities here. Right, right, of course. There's actually a kid's game now called Pull My Finger, and it's a monkey that farts at you when you pull. I'm not even making this up, folks. I kind of wish I was. I mean, I I wouldn't buy that for my kid, but I'd buy one for myself. You know what I mean? Yeah, me too. (laughs) I think it it sounds like drinking game material. Okay, so... Next, I chose Joe Orlando, who I love, and he was responsible for most all of the horror characters and comics at DC years later. But Joe was born in Italy, moved to uh, the United States, NYC, actually, when he was still an infant. You know, he's synonymous with uh, Tales from the Crypt, Vault of Horror, and Haunt of Fear. And we haven't talked enough about Haunt of Fear. That was a really good book. And that's where he really got his chops for the horror genre. But he started, he came to America in 1929. Then uh, later he went on to the High School of Industrial Art in New York City. And then he served a quick hitch in the Army. He came back. His first feature was The Adventure of a Hardworking White Boy, ironically named Chuck White, for Catholic Comics and Treasure Chest. Then he and Wally Wood opened the studio together and started cranking out such classics as Dorothy L'Amour, Frank Buck, Judy Canova, and Pedro, which is racist by today's standards, a a book about a lazy Mexican. Then, of course, he wound up at EC's doorstep, then worked on the books we just mentioned. But then after that, he went to Warren, and oh my gosh— I think you guys will agree with me. Some of his work on War at Warren was some of his best stuff ever. He was really at a peak art-wise back then. Do you think so, Jim? Sure. Thanks. One word answer time. I'm kidding. <laughs> and Alex, do, is there a specific era of uh, Orlando that you like? 
Yeah, I like his House of Mystery stuff. When DC hired him to bring a little bit of horror in and then some of that Bernie Wrights and stuff around that time. Yeah, I like that era. And he went to DC right after Warren, actually. And he wound up being a writer and artist where I don't really think he had written a whole lot before that, except maybe a little bit at Warren. Then he became editor and eventually vice president, believe it or not. And he died at the, I think, young age of 71 in 1998. And if you guys remember, he even had a whole segment that was used in Watchmen based on his uh, piracy stories back in his EC days. Jim, you have anything to say about that? I know you love Watchmen. Yes, I do. <laughs> but, but <laughs> so are you saying, Bill, that Tales of the Black Freighter section in Watchmen is based on the EC piracy comics? Yes, and it's even drawn by Joe Orlando. I believe they attribute that book to him in the comic, and then they have he does a couple pages that lead up to it that are put in the back three or four pages of every book where they had the background information, and they yeah. covered that. And uh, it was some pretty horrific stuff, you know. I, I have to say, even for Joe Orlando. But of course, he uh, retired as a VP at DC and passed away very well thought of. And he actually uh, probably made a little bit of coin along the way. So, which we can't say about all the artists that we're talking about tonight. And that leads me to Jim, Jim, who are your two? Since you asked me about Orlando, let me just say in terms of horror, I think the thing that I loved the most was probably uh, those, however many issues of plop at DC. That was my, which was his, which was his baby and, and those basal uh, Wolverton covers, everything about that. It just hit me at the right age. I was 13 to 16 at that point. There were 24 issues of it. And I just, I loved plop. That was, that was my, my favorite funny, funny thing. And I'm really surprised they haven't tried to bring that back because they have so many reimaginings in DC. And I'm just a, a little shocked that they never tried to bring plop back because I thought plop was one of the best DC books of all time. You know, I, I really do. I, I think it was the mad to DC, basically. Would, uh, would you agree? Yes. I Well, you no, know, I mean, I, I wouldn't agree it was, because it was it was more it was totally horror focused. They weren't doing pop culture spoofs, you know, like Mad was. I mean, I, well, I think it was some DC spoofs. Remember the Flash ripping everybody off at cards? Do you remember? Yeah, that? but that was, it's, that was I don't, it's not the same thing as doing movie spoofs. That's no, a gag. That's true. I, I agree. Okay, so Jim, that brings us to your two or two or three. All right, I'm I'm doing three. It would be Jack Davis would be one of the three. Probably the second, maybe the either the third or the second most uh, prolific of the the artists there. He basically showed up at the EC doorstep because nobody else would take him. He couldn't get a job, couldn't get a start. He shows up with a few samples and Feldstein immediately pays him and says, you know, you can start tomorrow. This is in, in 1947. He is assigned to all the all the horror titles in 1950, and he works on them from the beginning right through the final issues of, of all three of those. The interesting thing about that is as good as he was on the horror titles, he actually was not comfortable working on them, but he he had a following and he was loyal to them and he did it. 
but he much preferred Kurtzman's work, as do I. He preferred the war books and the humor books way over the horror stuff. He did uh, 120 stories. And then you were talking about who's successful. He's probably was the most successful. And maybe Orlando might have a, a stake in this, but he was probably the second most successful person for his post-EC career. He was making a seven-figure salary in the 1980s as probably the highest paid commercial illustrator in the business, not the comic business, in the entire business. So that's that's Jack Davis. Nice. Yeah. On the other side of the coin was Reed Crandall, perhaps the best artist of all of those. He was the last major artist to join EC, actually came in in 1953. He had worked in the Iger studio. He was famous already as the artist of Blackhawk, Dollman, Ray. He had worked on, on uh, pirate books and worked on piracy books for EC. Uh, he went to work on the horror, and as clean a line person as he was, he managed to still make probably the dirtiest, most depraved books, uh, stories of anybody, which is really saying something. Davis always did it as a cartoonish experience. Ingalls always did it so over the top. But Crandall made it just really disgusting and depraved in a, in a in, like I said, in a more sensational, dirty way. If I was going to ban one of them from my kid reading it, it would be Reed Crandall's stuff, which is kind of amazing because you think of how pretty his, his, his Golden Age books are. He was the sat, one of the saddest stories in that he, as good as he was, he did have drinking problems like some of the others at EC and ended as a night watchman and custodian at Pizza Hut where he died. He died way too early. That was Reed Crandall? Yeah. Wow. That was Reed wow. Crandall. I'm more of a roundtable guy. What do you guys think? Just joking. I know that's not what we're talking about. But I will say this. Reed Crandall's Doll Man was absolutely mesmerizing to me as a kid. And it was already like 30, 40 years old by that point. But... I really loved his stuff. I, th I thought his quality stuff was some of his best. I think he was, I don't know, he, he had, a, had a skill for making things look, like Jim said, just 10 times more gruesome than anyone else. He had a third career, Bill. I mean, he had that quality stuff, which was fantastic. Then he had the EC years. And then he had a, another period under Warren because he did some fantastic. He was one of the best artists working at Warren during those early days. Some of those Poe adaptations, that kind of stuff, they were fantastic. But then he lost his control over his, his hands a little bit. He didn't have that fine line that he used to have. And like I said, no savings and ended up at a Pizza Hut. That's sad. On the other hand, you have Jack Kamen, who was the most prolific of any of the EC artists, did 160 stories. He was known as the least popular of all of the artists at the time in the letters pages and such. Nobody really gravitated toward Cayman. Today, he's held in much higher regard than he was at the time. But I doubt very seriously if he really cared because he is, without question, was the richest of all of the uh, EC artists. The reason is because his son was a scientific genius who invented 
the Segway. He invented a drug infusion pump and other medical devices like the first kidney dialysis machine. Wow. He had like 400 and some patents, which Jack Kamen actually did the drawings and the design work for. Kamen also mortgaged his house to invest in these patents and became fabulously wealthy wow. uh, because of that. Wonderful. Uh, I don't know. Had you not, did you not know that, Alex? It's a, just an amazing story. I did not know that. And I like the whole scientific medical stuff. So I have massive respect for that. Uh, that's wonderful. Yeah. So, and he was always loyal to his friends at, from EC and tried to, to help them. I think some of them you were able to help and some of them were on a self-destructive track that you couldn't do much about. But uh, Cayman's work holds up. And, and now when you look at it, he drew the probably the most merciless, coldest women of any of them, which is what EC was all about to some degree. Although Wally Wood could really draw a cold, merciless woman too. And that's it for mine. Wow. That brings us to you, Al. Who are your two guys? Well, my first one is Johnny Craig. I love his stuff. It's a real smooth line. He's kind of like Milton Kniff, but just with a touch of crack cocaine mixed in. Bill, Bill, you know about that. Only what Jim told me. <laughs> but Johnny Craig, he started at All-American Comics under Sheldon Meyer, and he joined the Army, and he returned to comics, and he worked at EC starting in 1947. And he worked on a lot of genres, but he was ultimately known for his clean Milton Kniff natural style on the EC horror titles. He was both a writer, editor, and lead artist in the Vault of Horror series, which is actually my favorite of all the horror series from EC Comics. I have that Russ Cochran complete of the Vault of Horror. I don't have the other ones. I just have Vault of Horror because I just love it. There's something about his clean style. They talk about that clean New York line that dominated comics in the later 40s, early 50s, even later 50s, that you, when you mix it in with a dirty story, sets up a wonderful contrast for me and I think a lot of readers. Estes Kefauver, senator who held those subcommittee hearings with Bill Gaines, when he was questioning Bill Gaines, he held up Crime Suspense Stories 22, 1954, in front of Gaines with an axe inside of a woman's severed head, and he asked Bill Gaines, was this in good taste? And Gaines said, well, yes, trying to justify it. And that cover that he held up was by Johnny Craig, which just goes to show that that smooth, clean line, which I think symbolizes some of that 50 sense of safety. Then with the horror clearly delineating something horrific, mixes in some of that social anxiety of the time. And I think just his art and those stories really just capture that psychology. Now, something about Craig, though, is as celebrated as he was, when the horror comics stopped and he went into advertising, he did ration out some hours to try to do some comics here and there for Marvel and DC, and they just never were quite as good. And in fact, whenever he would turn in a piece, a lot of times the inker would just change the whole thing or they'd have people just change the whole thing because it just wasn't as good as his older stuff. And I don't know if he was just dividing his time too much with his advertising work and he just didn't really care or if he just lost that little zing that he had. But it just wasn't the same. You know, you look at a Tales of Suspense story with Iron Man by Johnny Craig and it's nowhere near the same as reading a Vault of Horror comic. At any rate, so my next guy that I really liked in that team is Graham Ingalls, and he could draw 
actually some really beautiful women and some pretty graphic grisly horrors. He worked, and when I say horrors, I meant with an H, not a W. I know that that's a point of confusion throughout this whole episode. Thank you so much for that clarification, Alex. As usual, I really, Jim and I are very, very grateful for that. Oh, good, good. I just want to say something real quick. You know, Ingalls was probably the biggest influence on Bernie Wrightson. And I think you guys both probably know this. Mm. If you look at his technique and how he worked with pen and ink, very, very similar to ghastly angles, as it were. Yeah, that's a good point. I actually can see that. I've never noticed that similarity before, but there is that detail and the grotesque that they both have. That's really interesting. Well said. Thank you. Thank you very much. Had you ever noticed that, Jim? Well, I, I knew rights it's no secret Wrightson acknowledged that a lot in, in his right. in his beginning. So so I knew it because Wrightson said it, but I, I well, probably would have noticed. And he told me a couple of years before he passed away, he told me that he was the single biggest influence on his artwork. Nice. So that's how I know. Yeah, because he moved to Austin. So he was down here in Texas until he passed away. Poor guy. He was infinitely talented and uh I Hate to digress from Ingalls. We'll go. We'll go back to that now. But I just had to had to mention his influence on Bernie Wrightson. Bernie Wrightson, yeah. Graham Ingalls did work in comics and actually just illustration for a long time. He was working on pulp covers and interiors as well as various Golden Age comic book covers. In 1948, he joined EC Comics, working on crime, romance and westerns, and he wasn't exactly a favorite artist over there. Harvey Kurtzman did not like his art. He was very clear about that. But when they converted most of their books to horror during the EC's new trend, Ingalls' misshapen details showed him to be an excellent fit. These twisted, grotesque, graphic horrors that he was famous for really shined and was a particular flavor of that particular time and genre that was just a perfect match. Just like how Bill says Bernie Wrightson was a perfect match for these 1970s DC horror stuff, Graham Ingalls was just perfect for this because when you read his stuff, it was almost like a dirty feeling, like there was a dirty feeling in your pants. You ever get that, Bill? Uh, no, not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> i'm sorry i'm sorry bill but i will say though that it gives you this sick kind of dirty feeling when you read it and it was just so effective in portraying that horrified feeling he was famous for drawing the old witch from the haunt of fear and he would actually draw her in other comic magazines as well that was really his character the first old witch was not drawn by him and wasn't even nearly as scary or misshapen but when graham ingles did it it was just this perfectly disgusting depiction of what an old witch would look like much scarier than jack davis yeah scarier than jack davis absolutely he wasn't nearly as cartoony as davis was he he was quite frightening right this is really sick stuff yeah. And horror was a beautiful niche for him, and he probably peaked artistically there when the Comics Code essentially eliminated horror from public consumption on the newsstands. He wasn't really hired to do much else. He really didn't really fit with the superhero genre, wasn't really much of a sci fi 
person either, although maybe he could have been, but it would have been this darker sci-fi stuff. So it just didn't quite work out with that smooth New York line that was kind of famous in comics. And it wasn't really a Jack Kirby approach either. So he just didn't fit anywhere. So unfortunately, he kind of petered out of comics and alcoholism, depression kind of got the best of him. He left his family, his son hated him. It was actually kind of a sad ending for that guy. I will say I do enjoy reading his stuff. I like Johnny Craig the most, but there is something about those Graham Ingalls stories that give that dirty feeling in your pants that we've all kind of miss and that we'll all kind of go back to every now and then. You know what I'm saying, Jim? I'm going to ignore the in my pants thing, but I I do want to (laughs) say it's interesting how many of these guys were not cut out for superheroes and they were considered the best guys working at the time. But when it shifted to superheroes, I mean, Reed Crandall could draw the hell out of a superhero, obviously. But Kamen never did any of that. Jack Davis couldn't stand drawing superheroes. He went over to Westerns when EC folded. I don't know that an Ingalls, obviously, I don't think, I mean, Wally Wood obviously could draw a superhero. And Reed Crandall could draw a superhero. And Joe Orlando. Yeah. He did quite a bit at DC. I know, it just wasn't very good. I mean, superhero-wise. It's just not the right genre for those guys. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Johnny Craig, those Iron Man. I, I mean, I really liked... The only thing I liked about Johnny Craig on Iron Man was the freak. Right. When Happy Hogan, when he was operated on and became that scary guy. That yeah. was That was kind of cool. That's looking, funny. But- All right. I'll go back and look at that again. I do remember that, though. You know, that's interesting. It's like having those guys draw superheroes... What would be the film analogy? Is that kind of like Wes Craven doing a romantic comedy? Would that be the same, just bad fit, Jim? You know, I, I know I've ta- I know a lot of those horror directors. I've had them come to my class. Most of them wanted, most of them would, would say, no, I could have done a romantic comedy in a second, except I was trapped by the horror genre. Mm. And that may be true to some degree with some of the EC artists, too. Maybe they could have done other things, but they were they were stereotyped and they weren't allowed to do that. I, I don't know. But, yeah, a lot of those a lot of those horror directors really didn't want to continue doing horror and they were kind of trapped in it. Yeah, well, didn't, I, he, didn't Russ Craven do that Eddie Murphy version of Blackula uh, in Brooklyn or something? Vampire yeah, I think he did. I think he did direct that. Yeah, and that was kind of a romantic comedy, you know, kind of. And that's interesting, because Jim brings this funny topic about being typecast, but these guys just weren't typecast, these artists. They just wouldn't have looked quite like the other guys doing superheroes at the time. I agree with you. Yeah, me too. Well, that brings us to Section 3, gentlemen. And that means, well, the Crypt Keeper says it's time to move on, fellows. We heard Gaines say at the beginning of the program, I was the first publisher in these United States to publish horror comics. I am responsible. I started them. Jim, is this true? That is so incredibly not true. They should have, like, found him in contempt for saying that at the subcommittee because that was such a a falsehood and an ego thing. I I can only think that the amphetamines were talking. That's right. He took amphetamines to get through that hearing, didn't he, Jim? Yeah, yeah, he did. He He was on diet pills at the time. There's been different versions of why, but, yeah, he was... He was definitely on speed when he was when he was doing all of that and sweating so, like a pig. Mm. 
yeah, it's pretty frightening to look at that footage. It really is. Because he it, it, he was just so nervous on top of being on speed. Right. And that's just a bad that's just a bad combination, as, as you know from personal experience, Alex. Um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> kidding, kidding. <laughs> yeah, I've definitely sweat like a pig before. I know that. Yes, I have to. I, when you and, had that thing in your pants going on, right? Yeah, when I was reading that Graham Ingalls book, "Dirty Feeling in the Pants," "Sweat Like a Pig," amazing sequence, and I can always rely on that. We all go back to that feeling, right, guys? Yeah, not me. <laughs> no. Hell no. Not me, man. Oh, hell no. So, Bill, let me let me go on. So what I was saying was that there, when I say that that's an incorrect statement by Gaines, you have Dick Briefer's Frankenstein before it went funny for Prize Comics on 1940 to 1945. You had classic comics, Gilberton's books. They did Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Um, in 1943, the first horror comic itself was was probably Eerie Number One, 1947, by Avon. Not by Warren. Uh, not by Warren. Right. And then the first series was ACG Adventures into the Unknown in 1948. All of this predating the EC books, uh, the horror books. That's right. And just a small mention is that the ACG book, the editor Hughes. When he was making those books, it has been mentioned that he was inspired by old pulp magazines when he was making that horror series. I think you can even make a case for Atlas. Keynes likes to say that that Atlas was copying them, but I think you could easily make an argument that Atlas was actually out in front. They certainly published a lot more horror stories than EC did by far, but I think they were they were right there doing it at the same time as EC. EC just got the best talent and were doing the best quality books, largely because Feldstein, I think, was writing the, the most coherent stories. Absolutely. Yeah, Feldstein is the key ingredient. And Alex, that launches straight to you, right? Because you're going to talk about some of those companies like Atlas. So there were some other companies. So Ziff Davis, they made horror in 1952. And that was when Jerry Siegel was the editor. And they had guys like John Bushima and Mike Sikowski working at Ziff Davis at the time. But they got out of comics by the time 1953 came around. St. John worked on horror comics. Star Publications converted shock detective cases to spook. So that's another example of crime comics turning into horror. Atlas's new horror title of 1953 was called Menace. Harvey had Black Cat Mystery, Chamber of Chills, Tomb of Terror, and Witch's Tales. So they really upped their game. They had actually really good stories and artwork. They had an editor, Sid Jacobson, and he was kind of responsible for pushing that line of books that did really well. They had an artist, Howard Nostrand, who was not Wally Wood and Jack Davis, but he was able to bring that look to those Harvey comics and almost try to simulate some of that EC Comics energy. And some of that art by Howard Nostrand really stands by itself as actually being quite good. It's almost like Gaines and Feldstein would have probably used him if they probably weren't already saturated with great talent and because Harvey just wanted to compete and they're willing to pay for someone to bring in some quality that could match it to the best of their ability. Of course, the comics code killed the horror comics, so Harvey had humor comics 
to go to when the comics code came. So Harvey didn't die from the lack of horror comics. Also, just interestingly enough, 1953 and horror, Steve Ditko premiered in comics in that year with horror with Fantastic Fears 5 for Ajax Pharrell and also another comic for Black Magic 27 for the Simon and Kirby studio called A Hole in His Head. So this was a huge year for horror, but I also like the idea that in this big horror year where there are a lot of companies trying their hand at it, that Steve Ditko got his introduction into comics in this energy. Also, it's kind of fun knowing that he worked with Simon and Kirby for that short time as well. Well, what about ACG? They they were pretty prolific in in their own right. In fact, they had the first actual horror character that recurred in uh, more than one story, and that was the Living Ghost, which I've actually talked about on this podcast before. I might add, but he was like Satan's best friend. He was the other angel that fell to Earth, and uh, he comes back every hundred years to kill people. It was really cool. Really a great story some of the earliest horror characters like you were mentioning mentioning dick briefer's frankenstein also they kind of went hand in hand in a odd way because they were one of the few recurring horror characters the heap would probably also fall into this category wouldn't you agree jim sure okay thanks i I mean to some to some degree bill I mean, it's kind of like the Hulk in a way, so is Hulk horror, but it is a monster comic. Although I will say the Heap, though, killed a lot of people. And Ricky Wood, his little Rick Jones type of sidekick, would walk into these rooms where people were murdered by the Heap, and he was just horrified. And actually the scene where the Heap meets Ricky Wood and kind of gets into his face, and Ricky Wood is feeling this fear... And they're both feeling this weird mutual rape fear that they were kind of sharing. And then they bonded over this kind of sick encounter. I would say, yeah, that kind of has a horror twist in a lot of those early Heap issues. The later Heap issues were not like that. The later Heap issues were... Yeah, that's what I was thinking. ...kind of silly, where... They changed the origin, this weird bet of the Greek gods and how they made these silly bets, and then the Heap was more of a magical character. It changed. But in the original, yeah, I would say you could make a case that a lot of that early Golden Age stuff was almost all kind of horror. Captain America, those first 11 issues with Simon and Kirby, are kind of like sick stories. They have machetes at Bucky's neck and they have these weird characters that were murdering people even one of the early stories that wasn't in one of the captain america comics but it was by simon and kirby there was a whole zombie invasion that they were fighting off so you could really make an argument that horror goes back to a lot of those golden age comics and i guess there's a little bit in everything so well speaking of simon and kirby we should also mention black magic which is being done during this 52 53 period and it was a lot of these comics at the time could be accused of being clones of, of EC in that they were making very much stories like an EC comic, only not as good. You could never say that about Black Magic. It was doing its own thing and, and doing a little bit less sensational, but a little bit more intellectual. They were really moving the boundary in terms of making smart comics at the time. 
both Black Magic and the the spinoff, which was Strange World of Your Dreams. Have you ever read any of that stuff, Alex? I did. There were four issues of Strange World of Your Dreams, and I have read all four of them. And what's funny about that is they would actually have an opening for fans to send in their dreams, and then they would draw those dreams in a comic. And that's a fun idea right there. What, I, was that Prize Comics? Yeah, was that it, was Prize. Yeah, they gave away prizes for that stuff, hence the comic company name. Nice. Prize. Now, Prize is the same as Crestwood, right? Crestwood. Is it? Well, it, that's complicated. It's not. It's not quite the same. I, I mean, there's there because Crestwood wasn't wasn't Kirby, and, and they, they, it was like an assignment, but it wasn't. It wasn't synonymous with each other. Yeah, because I know that when you, we look him up on ComicBookPlus.com, they combine him as Crestwood feature and prize as all in one thing. But I think. Prize is an imprint of Crestwood or something like that. That makes sense. Prize Prize was was Kirby Simon and Kirby, and they were working for Crestwood, and then they got into into some real problems there. But but they had a, like a distribution deal and that kind of thing. Right. But they're definitely not the not the same thing. The other thing I would say is you know let's anybody listening would say well what about DC if we know Atlas was was hammering out a lot of stuff. DC did very little bit of horror. They had a house of mystery and titles. You know, we were talking about books becoming horror sensation comics. The last issues of that became a horror book as well. And the Phantom Stranger was introduced at, at this point as well, but they were never in competition with the rest of these in terms of horror books. Right. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. Well, Jim, is that pretty much all? Of the major uh, comic publishers of horror at the time, it actually is. Alex covered some uh, some other <laughs> ones, so I, I think that's a pretty good. The only th- other thing I might point out is that Fawcett, which was doing things like this magazine, is, is haunted. They unloaded all of their um, their horror books, and they were picked up. Especially this magazine is haunted, picked up by Charlton, and Charlton really became a, a player in horror shortly thereafter. Now, something I wanted to mention, and I know Bill would probably like this, and probably Jim too, is that Simon Garth, the zombie, we talked about him in the uh, Halloween 1972 episode, but he was actually created in 1953. I mentioned that comic Menace, which was the new Atlas horror title of 53. He was created in Menace Number no. 5, created by Stan Lee and Bill Everett. So a lot of times we've read that from the Marvel magazine reprints, but that was actually 1953. So that's a little shout out to Simon Garth fans right there. We could talk about Atlas for a long time because they really, I mean, everybody talks about EC. But boy, there was some good art coming out of Atlas as well. I mean, they were paying decent, not not EC wages, but they were paying okay. And they were attracting talent like Joe Manili, who was just, should have been at EC. He was he was one of the best ever to work in, in horror comics during the 50s. Can we uh, basically credit Martin Goodman with that, Jim? I guess you could. I mean, I mean, in that that he, I think Manili actually and Stan Lee had a really good relationship. I think that was that's one of the things I would give to Stan was he recognized the talent. Uh, he was a big Manili booster. 
Oh, and he was fantastic. Can you imagine if Manili had lived an old age and what comics he could have produced for Marvel? Yeah, I, I, I just still that just sends goosebumps up my spine. Well, it's he, one of those what ifs, like what would yeah. have happened? Because what if Stan Lee had given Fantastic Four over to Manili instead of to Jack Kirby? What if Jack Kirby wasn't hired back because Manili never left? You know, it, it, it's it's one of those those questions where who knows what would have happened? That's amazing. Well, things are really messing up now, and heads will roll, gentlemen. Heads will roll. But it's time now for a little bit of rants of your own. Yes, it's everyone's favorite segment of the show, our podcast rants. And this week, I'm going to start with Alex. Alex, please, what do you have to rant about this week? Well, I've been reading the Sandman comics by Simon and Kirby. They left Timely Comics in uh, 1942. Evidently, they were starting to do some deals with DC Comics, and somehow Martin Goodman, their boss over at Timely, also known later as Marvel Comics, uh, found out about it and fired them where they went off to DC Comics and started work over there. That was their next era of comics, and they did Newsboy Legion, Boy Commandos, they did Manhunter, and The Sandman. And I enjoyed Newsboy Legion and Boy Commandos, but the Sandman comics are a lot of fun because they give you an idea of what the Captain America comics probably could have been if Kirby and Simon had stayed. You have the Sandman and his sidekick Sandy just dealing with some random adventures that are very much in the style of the Captain America comics. Just these weird one-shot villains and dirtbags. There's a lot of dirtbags in it. And it's also fun to see Kirby's art develop from those Captain America comics because you'll see some pretty dynamic action. It's less blocky because his later stuff was more blocky, but you can see him experimenting with that jumping off the page action. But there was an elegance to it that I don't think he had later where you see these more smooth lines and these more probably anatomically correct people. The action and him developing as an artist and seeing what could have been as far as Captain America stories, it's a really fun experience. I highly recommend it. I love those. His page design was really evolving during that time, though, to a fantastic capacity. And and you can see it from, from the Captain America stuff to Sandman. He's evolved quite a bit in a short period of time, it seems like. And they are they are fantastic, and I wish more people knew about them. Yeah, and there's this underwater sequence where him and Sandy just go underwater and they got their gear on and they're fighting guys down there. And it's just quite amazing that he can change locales so easily and then jump into the action and make those pages have just as much action as the running around action that he's just used to. You could just imagine him having a lot of fun looking at some reference material and just making some great action, no matter what the location is. And it is fun reading it. You can almost feel the fun he probably had drawing that stuff. Have you ever seen the Captain Marvel stuff that Simon and Kirby did for, I think, just one issue, right, Jim? Yeah, yeah, they did Captain Marvel Adventures 1, number one. Right. And that was just kind of... It was a super special or something. Well, Fawcett had asked them, the Simon and Kirby team, to help start a comic named after their successful character because he had already 
been successful in Wiz Comics. And so they said, well, let's make a comic just with his name, and we'll just have more stories, and we'll sell that many more comics. And they just put that thing together. It just took like a couple weeks. They did all-nighters. They were working on their normal stuff, and they did that late at night and didn't want their boss to know just to get that extra cash. Those are fun stories. Something interesting about that comic, and I don't know if you guys have noticed it, but they refer to Captain Marvel as the Thunder God, which is, I think, a Thor reference, in my opinion. And that happens in the same story where he fights aliens from Saturn. So you have a Thunder God fighting aliens from Saturn, which he then brings into Journey into Mystery 85, 1962, the first Marvel Thor story. So that makes me think that Kirby did much more than just draw those stories, even though it says written by Stan Lee. It makes me think that he actually brought some plot into that first Thor issue, because you have a Thunder God fighting Saturn aliens in both Captain Marvel Adventures 1, 1941, and then Journey into Mystery 85, 1962. I rest my case here, here, here. Well yes. done, Alex. I, Go Brave So I, I, I have to say, okay, I'm going to have to do an imitation here. I know you're shocked at that, but me, I'm angry that you gave me all your bizarro bubblegum. Yes, I'm infuriated with the political rants that are going on comparing our country to the bizarro world when actually it's more like Twilight Zone. But no, I, I digress. This week alone have at least four major articles where they reference the bizarro world, which is so popular in the DC Silver Age universe. And uh, most notably would be Bernard Goldberg where uh, he assures us we're not in a bizarro world, that Trump knows what he's doing. And I'm not going to get political on this. I could care less at this point. But I will say this. I don't like people using the bizarro world out of context because, you know, nobody's speaking backwards. No, I mean, people are tweeting backwards maybe, but not speaking backwards. And they're not, you know, white isn't black, black isn't white. I, I love my bizarros. How about you guys? Don't you love the bizarro world? I know I know what you're saying. You're saying that there's some fond childhood memories with those comics, and you don't like people using it as a vehicle for their political ideas and somehow corrupting the innocence that went into those original comics and you know uh, and the fun and the fun and yeah. it kind of takes the fun out of it. And I, I, I could see that. I could see that. I don't know. You know, everyone has their feelings on what's going on. They'll use whatever to express their own ideas the best they can. You know, uh, in the end of the day, it's a freedom of speech thing. And if they want to use that as their metaphor, they're free to. doesn't make it any more convincing to people who don't agree with it. It does, it, uh, if anything, may push any dissenting opinions away from that person trying to push that image. But they're free to do it. It's not going to win any swing votes, but they can do whatever they want, you know? I don't have any problem at all with them linking current times to Bizarro just because the same reason I wouldn't if they were calling it Orwellian. They're, they're just they're, – they're useful terms for political discussion. If they were to take it and do some kind of deep analysis of it, maybe. I, but Bizarro just sounds like bizarre, except we kind of know what they're talking about a little bit. It doesn't bother me. Well, and I'm sure the Bizarros would be happy with it, you know, because everything opposite makes them happy. Mm, there you go. And, you know, I tried to speak Bizarro once. 
I got confused. I couldn't do it. Well, you know, Super Baby and the Bizarros kind of sounded alike to me. It was like, me, I'm, me, I'm thirsty, you right. know, and then he drinks an entire water tower and that kind of stuff, you know. So he's saying he's thirsty, and then he drinks, so it's not opposite right there. You know what I'm saying? Oh, well, yeah, okay, okay. This is where the language, it's like Klingon, like, I think they we're just making it up as we go along. Oh, I, I know so. I know Bill, so. frankly... Yes. If you read those tweets, I'm sorry. I think you, I mean, I would argue the point that it's kind of insulting the bizarros. Well, yeah, I mean, that would be too, uh, you know, because leave my bizarros alone, man. Come on. I love them. I I wish we had bizarro number one myself. But, but anyway, let's, I'm going to rant now. Okay, please. And I'm going to talk about Robert Warshow. Did you just say Robert Wagner, Jim? No, I did not. Robert Warshaw. Robert Horshaw. Horshaw. Okay, okay, okay. Robert, <laughs> Robert oh, sorry, Warshaw not Horshaw. Was an essayist and a critic during the 1940s and 1950s. He uh, died at the age of 37 in 1955, right after the time we're talking about. He wrote what I think is the single best essay on EC Comics ever written. It's called Paul, which is the name of his 13-year-old son, the horror comics, and Dr. Wortham. It's available online, and I just want to read a short passage from it. Seduction of the Innocent is a kind of crime comic book for parents, as its lurid title alone would lead one to expect. There is the same simple conception of motives, the same sense of overhanging doom, the same melodramatic emphasis on pathology, the same direct and immediate relation between cause and effect. If a juvenile criminal is found in possession of comic books, the comic books produce the crime. If a publisher of comic books alarmed by attacks on the industry retains a psychiatrist to advise him on suitable content for his publications, it follows necessarily that the arrangement is a dishonest one. If a psychiatrist accepts a fee of perhaps $150 a month for carrying out such an assignment, that psychiatrist has been bought. It is of no consequence to point out how easily a psychiatrist can make $150. It is therefore all right to appeal to the authority of a sociologist who has analyzed Superman, according to criteria worked out by the psychologist Gordon Allport, and has found him to be a psychopathic deviant, but no authority, whatever, can be attached to the bought psychiatrist who has been professionally engaged in the problem of the comic books. If no comic book publisher has been prosecuted under the laws against contributing to the delinquency of minors, it cannot be because those laws may not be applicable. It must be because no district attorney, no judge, no complainant has ever had the courage to make a complaint. I like it. I think wow. Rosho said it brilliantly there with that comparison between the comics and seduction of innocent and i think he basically dropped the mic with that he did it makes me almost and then he died and then he died look at that dropping the mic and then dying now that's a punchline you know we have to tell the truth he he was strangled by wortham something to note about seduction of the innocent and again i actually like wortham because of the work he did before that with his neurology textbook and his book on fanzines. I have both. I've looked through both. I will say that one of the criticisms, and it is a valid one, about Seduction of the Innocent is that he does say that 90% of juvenile delinquents read comics, but he also neglected to mention that 90% of non-juvenile delinquents also read comics. And so 
by omitting that, it becomes a strange, non-scientific approach to an argument. And if you follow down that train of thought, it becomes more of fame and grouchiness rather than a true, valid, uh, proven statement. However, despite the grouchiness and the fame, he really did deal with juvenile delinquents. He worked in the New York psychiatric school system and really felt bad for the young kids that he worked with on a daily basis that society and these perfect families turned a blind eye toward. So if anything... There are some silver linings to the man, and he did have a true concern that a lot of parents just didn't even care that these little juveniles existed or were in psychiatric facilities, and he did care about those kids. And I just want to make sure that that's clear. Would you say he was the Dr. Phil of the 50s? (laughs) I mean, I'm just putting this out there, that's all. Dr. Phil, but with less Rohypnol, is that correct? Much less, you know, to his credit, he and I both went to the University of North Texas, so he he had a fine education. I don't even think he's actually a psychoanalyst. I I think he's a charlatan, but that's left for yet another episode, our Dr. Phil episode, as it were. Look, we don't want to make enemies with Dr. Phil at at this stage of the game, Bill. No, we don't. We don't. No, because he may get appointed to be Surgeon General or something. We never know. Frederick Wortham was right. Comics suck. No, but honestly, <laughs> I I have to end this with a really bad Crypt Keeper rhyme, as it were. I'm using as it were too much. How would the Bizarro use as it were? As it weren't? I don't know. But Or, or sort of like Yoda. Yeah, me, never mind. I'm not even going to go there. But I will say, Jack and Jill went up the hill to fetch a pail of water. Jack fell down and... Jill beat the hell out of him and rolled him down and cut off his head. (laughs) Okay, that being said, I do want to tell both of you gentlemen, this has been a fantastic episode and really showed us where we were at in 1953 with the storm of 1954 to come shortly thereafter. So I couldn't have done this without you two. And I have to say, Alex, Jim, this has been a wonderful episode. Alex? We'll see you next time. Adios, amigos. And Jim, we'll see you again, too. Uh, Yes, you will. I'm not going anywhere. As far as we know. But but the Crypt Keeper may have other plans. (laughs) 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 But but, but on that note, on that note, I'm Bill Field, your host. Aloha, over, and out.